Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Today's show, we're going to be talking about the subject of climate change. Um, this is something that we've talked about on Punching Out in the past. Um, I know we've done at least one climate change-focused episode, but it also is something that comes up in the background of other topics. It is necessarily something that has its tendrils in all things as you know it's only going to get worse ecology like history keeps happening yeah but for today's show we're going to drill down on climate change and talk a bit about the effects we're already seeing specifically um so often in our discourse climate change is talked about as a problem of the future it's talked about as something happening down the road but as just this week shows very clearly with the uh, wildfires in Hawaii. And this summer, we've had smoke coating the Northeast Corridor. We've had, you know, heat waves across the country, across Europe. The climate is in the news now more than ever. And again, that's only going to become more the case. And we have existing effects from that. And as you might expect, the people who feel those effects most strongly, who are most impacted by climate change, are going to be those at the bottom of the ladder, the workers. First of all, I would I would say, let's not drill down on climate change. Drilling down is how we got in this mess in the first place. Well done. Thanks, Dan. Second of all, it should come as no surprise. <clears throat> that the sectors of workers who are most affected by climate change in general, but we're talking about extreme heat, which is blanketing the country. There are highs of 100 in places that didn't know that was a possible temperature. There are, in, in places that already are used to it, 110 or even 120 is becoming the new normal. Where I'm from, in Puerto Rico, it, it's not usual to have constant triple-digit temperatures and wet bulb temperatures. There's a combination, you know, usually there's a little bit of a balance with all of the different kind of sea and air forces that are supposed to help figure it out. It's an island. It's supposed to be more stable. Has not mattered. Things are bad, meteorologically speaking. And it should come as no surprise that the people who are most affected by that are already the most vulnerable workers in the country, on the planet, which are farm workers, construction workers, anybody who does any kind. If you work with your hands and you work outside, we don't respect what you do for a living. And that therefore means that you are in this zone where you are not protected from the elements and and you are in the exact conditions where you will be most vulnerable to them. 
all the solutions that we're going to talk about and all the fixes that are suggested for these things all rely on the idea that this is work that needs doing and we're going to have to put people in harm's way. So let's protect them as best we can. But there's a reason that they're in this pickle to begin with. And, you know, in some cases, given the heat and humidity, it might almost be a literal pickle. Yeah. One of the articles that we're going to pull from today is in the New York Times. It's from July 20th with the headline, How Extreme Heat Affects Workers and the Economy. It starts like this. Linda Ressler is an airplane cabin cleaner at the airport in Phoenix, where the temperature has reached or surpassed 110 degrees Fahrenheit for 20 days in a row and county. Ressler, 57, works the overnight shift inside planes where the air conditioning is off and nighttime temperatures regularly approach 100 degrees. This week, as she was wiping down a tray table, she briefly lost consciousness from the heat. It drains your brain, she said. It slows your cognitive function. You're overwhelmed by the heat. And obviously the Times and us here are using her as one example among many thousands and millions of people who are having to work in these conditions. I, I know there have been studies, uh, especially about what happens when nights are hot, when it doesn't get cool the way it used to at night, and how that really has a negative impact on human function. All throughout history, we had this expectation that at night, when you're sleeping, things would be a little cooler. You'd be able to let off some of the heat, not just humans, but buildings and all our infrastructure were designed to let out the heat when it cools at night. And when it's 100 degrees at night, that's impossible. And it's it's inescapable, too. Like, you know, you can't move a whole population of people from one city. Like you can't move the people from Phoenix to somewhere else. That's going to be more hospitable. You're, you're there. And the, the weather and the climate that's changing, like there's, there's no getting around that. And the fact that it's so bad for so many people and affecting people, honestly, I'm more surprised that it's not a bigger deal. Like, yeah, you'll see, news about wildfires and you'll see uh cactuses in in arizona like melted on the ground because of the extreme heat that's gone there but this is still kind of fringe stuff it seems like and even though you know we've been talking about climate change for decades at this point like nobody seems to care all that much unless you're directly affected by it because i think all the people who can make policy decisions they're not that affected like they can go to their their AC office, they can go to their, you know, AC home or whatever like that it doesn't affect them. And it's really disappointing. You talked about how you can't just expect a city of people to move somewhere else. And that is true. Obviously, in the short term, like Phoenix isn't going to disappear. But it's also worth noting in part here that Phoenix came from somewhere. Phoenix is a city largely of people who move to the Southwest from other parts of the country. Um, it's a city that has seen explosive growth in the last several decades. And like, that's a change that happened and can unhappen just as easily if in the coming decades, Phoenix is a city where the temperature is simply too hot to live, where the water supply isn't a guarantee. 
And one of the effects you're going to see from climate change is significant migrations. And it's easy to poke fun at Phoenix, which is, as a city, almost a monument to the idea that, you know, we don't have to care about nature. But it's also affecting places where people have been living for thousands of years. You know, it's affecting the American South. It's affecting India. It's affecting South America. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like, especially uh, cities in, in the American West that have popped up in the past few decades, despite knowing that climate change was coming, despite knowing that they had severe restrictions on water usage, despite all of that, and despite current conditions, they're still growing. And we can talk about how that's a policy decision and everything like that, but like the people who are there, who, who were moved there as children or, or have to go there because of economic conditions, like they can't up and leave right away. And, and nobody will up and leave and nothing's going to really change until there are millions of people dead. Is, that's my expectation of this going in now. Like it, 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 this is affecting so many people right now and there's still so few motivating incentive or there's no, so few incentives out there to do anything about it right now that like, I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's a very frustrating situation. Yeah. I, I remember back when, you know, they were still calling it global warming as opposed to climate change. When that was when I was a kid, and even then, it it felt like this massive problem. One of the weirdest parts of growing up for me was watching this thing that, when I was a kid, was not arguable. It was happening. There was nothing you could say about it becoming an object of debate because fossil fuel companies stood to lose money. And then now that it is here, and there is nothing we can do about it really like now we're talking about mitigation we're not talking about prevention anymore we're talking about mitigation and possibly repair in a dream world right and suddenly it's been no actually this will be good for people somehow which is very interesting because i don't think it's typically good for people to die and that's what tends to happen with extreme heat and extreme cold and extreme weather natural disasters the wildfires that ryan referenced but, you know, storms are going to pick up in strength. There's going to be blizzards that we haven't seen in thousands, if not millions of years. Things are going to be horrifying, nightmarish, bleak, apocalyptic. And we are sort of trying here, I think, to demonstrate that those impacts range all the way from the panic attack you feel when you look at your weather radar to... People who have, uh, Ryan, you might have this more to hand than I do, but who are getting all the symptoms of a fever without an infection. People who are dying from heat stroke, falling unconscious, being permanently disabled. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, we'll, we'll get more into this in segment two, but I don't think it's a coincidence that after going through this pandemic for the past three years and really just finishing the long-term project of alienating everybody from each other, that the next big challenge is something that requires that collective effort. And there's no, there's no collective like mental energy to recreate that community. Yeah. To the point you had made about uh, workers feeling that 
uh, symptoms of fever without actually having one. Uh, this comes from an AP article, which focuses in on the effect of climate change on farm workers, who, of course, a vitally necessary job, one that in the United States is done primarily by immigrants and primarily by immigrants who are coming from countries where it is only hotter. The AP here quotes uh, Pedro Murrieta Baltazar, who works in sweet corn and vegetable fields in Ohio, a place that, you know, sure, it gets hot in the summer, but it is not what we think of when we think of, you know, oppressive heat. You know, there are hotter parts of the country. There are certainly hotter parts of the world. And yet he's describing how even in Ohio, farm workers are having to take precautions from, you know, the effects of heat. Quote, during the summer, they work at one side of the field in the early morning when it's cooler. And then afterward, they put us on the other side where there is more shade, Maria to Baltazar said. That's in Ohio. It's certainly happening in California, in Arizona, in Florida. There's a the Washington Post article that gets into like the effects on farm workers in Florida. Just to continue, the New York Times article here notes... Uh, At least two workers collapsed and died last week in Italy, which is at the center of Europe's searing heat wave. In India, workers in the informal economy are suffering under the unrelenting sun. Quote, this past month, I've either had fever or body ache every other day, a food delivery driver in Delhi told Rest of World, an independent news site. And in Dubai, which will host the United Nations Climate Change Conference this year, workers are struggling to cope with furnace-like conditions. Between noon and 3 p.m. or 3.30 p.m., we simply cannot work. Isam Janetti, who works in an outdoor car park, told Voice of America. There's two incredible pieces of irony there. Obviously, Dubai hosting a conference on climate change. That's another monument to human hubris right there. But also... Somebody, but also Voice of America asking workers in other countries, presumably so that then they can funnel that information to anti-union death squads, which is what they spent most of the 20th century doing. That's that's pretty amazing, and pretty bald-faced of of the U.S.'s like in, international media arm to be trying to get opinions on this when again, the U.S. could be leading the way on any of this and instead is not only bringing up the rear but like actively trying to tug everybody else towards its uh increasingly hellish hole dubai another desert city but also one whose wealth comes from the fossil fuel industry it's wild that the un would hold a climate conference there for that reason among others no, they, they know all about climate control and doing that because they have like an indoor skiing area that you can practice your downhill skiing on. Um, so, so like Dubai totally has it covered. They've got that really tall building that no doubt has its own climate measurements. So yeah, 100%. They are the ones to do this. I agree. The UN's onto something. That punching out does not generally endorse the idea of the UN being onto something by having a climate energy conference and a climate change conference, part of me, in Dubai. I feel, that, I feel it's necessary to mention this. Yeah, this to some extent, this segment is just going to be a list of horrifying anecdotes and statistics because 
you know, this is not a new problem. Like we started off saying, you know, this is something we've known about for decades. This is something that we've been aware about. And yet it still feels necessary to put forth, put front and center the horrifying business end of it all. There was something I saw a few weeks back about people suffering burns just from touching the asphalt in Phoenix, in Arizona. Um, People who had passed out due to heat stroke landing on that asphalt and finding themselves covered in severe burns from it. This AP article says, quote, farm workers are 35 times more likely to die of heat exposure than workers in other industries, according to the National Institutes of Health. But there is no federal heat standard that ensures their health and safety. Um, that's something we'll get into in the next segment. And and the thing about it is, right, like it was with COVID, like it is with every other problem. We live in a country that believes in individual solutions to systemic problems. That's the classic approach. Walk it off. What are you, a coward? That kind of thing. You're not working hard enough. Uh, you're too lazy and entitled. You're a millennial, etc. cetera. Uh, what do you want? Avocado toast instead. I think I've made my point. But Edgar Franks here mentions that working on farms in the heat, he, he mentions that it's a matter of life and death. Now, this is a man who is still working at Berry Farms in Washington, but is also the political director for a farm worker justice group. And he says, there's no escaping it. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, covered from head to toe in like the best ventilated clothing or wearing the hats and all that or in a T-shirt or anything. It's going to be hot no matter what. I want anybody listening to keep that in mind because we are going to talk about some of the solutions that have been offered to this. And they are almost all on the level of we're loose fitting clothing in non-dark colors kind of thing. Like you would if you were going on like a, a like a tourist trip, you know, right there between, you know, make sure to wear close-toed shoes in a cave. I don't know. It, it's It's the level of, and this is disrespect is what it is. Because this is always coming from people who have not have to do absolutely anything, any any kind of backbreaking labor like this in their lives. Men who have worked one summer of construction with the guys that they will then employ as the owner of their dad's you know plumbing or contracting business will be in comment sections all across the internet complaining that immigrants from Central America couldn't get their uh, their fruit on time because they were you know too busy passing out in the fields. Or you'll have people who get to sit in their offices all day. Or better yet, get to work from home. Because that we saw how that went during COVID where what, once the articles came out that said, you know, what was it? If you hadn't gotten it within the first year, it talked about like, how have you avoided it? And you had all these people who hadn't had to step out of their offices. And you're saying, well, I guess I mask and I stay away from other people and so on. And never had at the point of like, I don't work in healthcare. I don't work in a school. I don't work anywhere I'm. It's the same thing with this. There's going to be a bunch of people who should absolutely shut up, listen, and frankly, not talk, period, who are going to be the loudest voices on this. And unfortunately, we're going to get to meet the people who represent them and lobby for them in the next segment. You bring up the pandemic. And a story I remember from early in the pandemic is how a major union in California had come upon a stockpile of masks at a time when there was a severe shortage of masks because they had had those masks owing to the forest fire season that happens almost every year now in California where the air is simply unsafe to breathe. 
this segment, we've been focusing on heat deaths and heat exhaustion and stuff like that. But smoke inhalation is going to be another, you know, common malady of our warmer future. Another problem that you run into when discussing this subject is that it's hard to get exact numbers on something like this for a variety of reasons. Obviously, with any death, there can be a number of causes and it can be hard to pinpoint just simply say, oh, this one was heat. This one would not have happened if climate change weren't happening. You know, the human body, it's a little too complex for that. But also because, as the Washington Post notes, the government says its figures are likely vast underestimates because of underreporting uh, when it comes to heat deaths and, you know, workplace deaths owing to heat. There's a lot of incentive for companies, for governments to say, to minimize this problem in the way that there were around the early stages of COVID and the later stages of COVID. There's not necessarily going to be a concerted effort just to pull together the data on who is being affected by this, who is dying from this. And that poses an obstacle to having honest discussions about what reality is. Yeah, this is something that gets, it pulls on so many threads of how interdependent the, and in particular, to be clear, we're talking about the first world. Like, we're talking about post, quote-unquote, post-developed countries. We're talking here about rich countries that, or I don't know what the correct term would be to use that, that would be morally correct here. But we're talking about, frankly, the West, the global North. That is where this discussion is especially not being had and needs to be. Perhaps it's best if we uh, take a break here. And when we come back, we will talk about the breaks that workers aren't getting. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On our first segment today, we were discussing the various heat deaths and injuries that workers have been suffering around the world owing to what is a particularly hot summer. I think several points this year we have crossed the threshold of hottest day ever recorded. It's an El Nino year. Obviously, climate change uh, continues apace. As some might say, it's only the hottest year so far. But in this segment, we want to get into a bit of the um, obstacles to legislation and governments really taking action on this problem, really taking action to protect workers from the increasingly bad conditions they have to suffer through when working outside in several months of the year. One of the impetuses for this episode, I think, was a recent bill in Texas, which 
got rid of that state's mandated water breaks for workers. Um, I'm going to quote a bit from the Texas Tribune here, which had an article about it. In a week when parts of the state are getting triple-digit temperatures and weather officials urged Texans to stay cool and hydrated, Governor Greg Abbott gave final approval to a law that will eliminate local rules mandating water breaks for construction workers. It is what it says on the tin. It's Abbott and and his ilk have given really poor justifications for why they would do something like this, you know, claiming that, oh, you know, workers and their bosses, they know when enough is enough. They know when to stop and take a break. They don't need the government telling people what to do. The the usual crap. But I think it's worth noting again that uh, construction, like agricultural work, is work that is done disproportionately by immigrants and by uh, Hispanic people in the United States. If you were wondering why certain industries get carved out from water break rules, you can maybe look at that as one explanation. Yeah. As the resident Texas uh, correspondent or whatever. Senior Yeehaw correspondent. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, Senior Yeehaw correspondent. I love it. It has a long history of claiming states' rights, which is why we won't uh, follow federal guidelines on um, EPA protections or schooling or any any category, cool, but insists at the state level that they can and will override any kind of local ordinance. So the particular ordinances that were overridden by this Texas law were ordinances in Austin and Dallas. And this also put a halt to an ordinance that San Antonio was trying to pass to mandate water breaks for workers. And the specific reasoning they gave in this case was that it was, you know, we don't need to regulate this. Businesses can take care of their own thing. And this is making it needlessly complicated. But at every single level, businesses do not take care of workers until they are forced to do so. It doesn't matter how many people die. It doesn't matter if consumers die. It doesn't matter if workers die. They will not do anything until they are forced to do so. So as Brian was alluding to, like the only thing you can really conclude from this action is that it is entirely to be cruel and inhumane to people that the Texas government and a lot of Texans in general think should be punished for existing, namely Hispanic immigrants, uh, which is why they put buzz saws and buoys on the Rio Grande River. Like there's so many layers of bad stuff going on there. Uh, The Texas state took over uh, Houston uh, Independent School District, which I grew up next to. Like they, they took it over because they refused to, basically resegregate to some degree like i'm i'm exaggerating a little bit but that's kind of the goal and and to be clear didn't just take it over handed it to a charter school magnate yeah that that's that's what they did they they essentially puerto ricoed the houston isd right without there actually being any kind of crisis to have dealt with like they weren't broke they hadn't suffered any major disaster this year uh definitely in past years um but just just because they could so that's my two cents on Texas. Yeehaw. 
well, we're not done here because we're going to continue the Greg Abbott hate hour. Who, frankly, this is going to be this is going to be light on him. But let's remember that this is a man who has basically done his level best to put a gun in the hand of every man, woman, and child living within Texas state borders to the point that and and defended the cops at Ross Elementary in Uvalde and was reelected with a higher margin by the people of Uvalde. When those are the standards to which you hold your politicians, like, listen, I don't think anybody on this call is a particularly huge, you know, hashtag vote blue no matter who type or any of that. But when you hold your sta- your politicians to that kind of standard, you are only going to get people for whom the entire point of holding office is to be cruel to others. And Greg Abbott continues to be one of the foremost exemplars of that in the country. It's not just Houston, by the way. It's other school districts where he's been appointing people uh, strategically throughout and then doing the same things he's been doing in Houston. It's just he finally screwed with a city that was big enough and blue enough. But this is of a piece. This is basically, I, I need people to realize, this is effectively, de facto, United States policy on this issue. We can isolate Greg Abbott and talk about him all we want, and he deserves things that we can't say without getting in trouble with the FCC. But is Joe Biden doing anything to stop this? Not really. It, not not in the way that he's handing billions of dollars to you know Ukraine, for example. No questions asked. Or the military in general. Again, no questions asked. That's the important part. Like I think what people need to realize is that you can you know, we talk about budgets being moral documents. You can tell what a government cares about by when it is willing to simply push through things with no discussion, no debate, no disagreement, no dissent, just here's some freaking money. And we don't do that for farm workers and construction workers. We've never done it for farm workers because, again, this is a country that was founded on agricultural slavery. So farm labor has always been a question of not paying people and making people do it to work off debt or to or or simply to own them as property. It has never been an, a thing of free farm workers. The American myth of the farmer is the biggest piece of hooey anybody in this on this continent has ever invented. And and you still have people doing that. I literally saw the other day somebody online claiming that those subsidized farmers work harder than anybody does in an office. They're not the ones doing the work, bro. It- Talked about what the federal government is doing here and what they aren't doing. I came across a bit in Bloomberg Law that uh, I think that you might find fascinating here. Headline of uh, why OSHA has no worker ru- worker heat rule explained. Quote, by OSHA's own account, the agency must go through 46 steps to enact a rule. 39 of which are dictated by laws passed by Congress or White House executive orders. According to OSHA, the heat rule is at step 20, conducting a small business review, a requirement set by law that all significant OSHA rules must fulfill. And so to some extent, this is a story of our government being sclerotic and unable to do anything of importance. By design. Yeah. Certainly. There's, um, from the very beginning, our federal government was hamstrung and designed not to be able to do anything too quickly. But at the same time, I think it has also been very good at getting in its way. 
this is true. I will point out, however, that this is this specific thing is meant to be to business's benefit. Because it's also worth pointing out that Greg Abbott, who thinks the phrase states' rights is in the Bible somewhere, is doing this over the control of local municipalities. So for somebody who believes that all this should be done at the community level, Dallas and Austin tried that. This law eliminates it. San Antonio was considering that. They can't do that now. They'll have to sue if they want to keep those laws on the books. And that is the pattern of every red state, right? It's There is a pocket of blue in just about every red corner of the country, uh, whether it's the big cities in Texas or New Orleans and Louisiana or Milwaukee in Wisconsin. There's a very open at this point resentment that red state governors, Republican legislatures have towards cities and their residents and the Democrats who live there. And the idea of lifting one finger to make life better for those people. You hear it in the way even that like suburbanites in Monroe County refer to the city of Rochester, you know, as a place that they live around but wouldn't dare live in. I think my dog heard that one. <laughs> that that's the basic dynamic at play in red states at this point. I wanna talk a bit about the sorts of people who pay Greg Abbott when we come down to it. Obviously, he's not acting on his own. He is acting as part of a, you know, a right-wing movement that stems from voters and from businesses and this big coalition between the richest people on the planet and, you know, people willing to vote for Republicans in Texas. The Washington Post article that we referenced a bit earlier talks about the sorts of lobbyists who stand in the way of the federal government and state governments doing anything to make things easier for workers burdened by increasingly hot days on the job. Quoting here from the Washington Post, across the country, industry leaders and lobbyists have made the same argument. States should put off writing their own rules until a national regulation takes effect. But business interests are working to create doubt about whether a national heat rule is needed or even legal. In comments to OSHA, business groups have said that the compliance costs would be extreme and that employers are already doing the right thing. The American Farm Bureau Federation wrote to the agency saying it should, quote, partner with employers on better training materials instead of pursuing a new rule. The National Cotton Council wrote that many heat-related issues are not caused by farm work or poor management, but instead result from the modern employee lifestyle in an advanced 21st century global economy. The group pinned workers' inability to withstand high temperatures on, quote, present-day luxuries such as air conditioning and Americans' quote, sedentary lifestyle. You know, it used to be a trope in like the 80s and 90s that for like right-wing dream fantasies like Tom Clancy novels and things like that, that eco-terrorists were actually all rich white fakers who were living in their, you know, like air-conditioned compounds and everything, and that they were always subjected to the law of the jungle. They were sent out into the Amazon with nothing but the clothes on their backs 
to to see how long they could survive. That's what should happen to these people, because the fact that you can have something called the National Cotton Council anytime after 1865 in this country is an embarrassment. The level to which these should be ridiculous statements on their faces, these should be things that we all laugh at and say, absurd. And I think a number of us do more than maybe would have 10, 20 years ago. But it's clearly not enough because they're still getting away with it. Partly because nobody cares about the people that they're writing about. But the idea that a bunch of, you know, like Salvadoran farm workers can't stand the heat because they want their avocado toast is it, it, it's what's the word I'm looking for? It's um ridiculous, preposterous, preposterous. It's preposterous. All of these people need to be visited by ghosts on Christmas Eve. This Washington Post article continues with a bit from Oregon. Again, not a state that is particularly hot, but one that nevertheless workers are suffering from the heat in. Quote, in Oregon, trade organizations representing timber and manufacturing companies have filed a lawsuit to stop the state from enforcing new rules protecting workers from heat illness and wildfire smoke. The groups argue that the rules are too vague, too costly, and amount to regulatory overreach. To support this last claim, they appear to borrow from what was ultimately a winning argument before the U.S. Supreme Court, which in January stayed the implementation of the Biden administration's vaccine or test mandate for large companies. The court's conservative majority found that the coronavirus is not a workplace hazard, but a, quote, universal risk that is no different from the day-to-day dangers that all face from crime air pollution, or any number of communicable diseases. People said at the time that that ruling would be used in exactly this way. If, if, you are, if, if your argument that you are using to like not do something, not even do the bare minimum, is based on something that impressed Neil Gorsuch, you should be embarrassed. You're an idiot. And an evil idiot at that. Like, listen to that language again of, you should partner with employers. They don't mean partner, they mean be subservient to. These people do not believe in the equality, not just of the worker, but of anyone but themselves. They are neo-feudal in nature. They see themselves as the nobility, because they own land and they own companies. They treat the rest of us like we're serfs. That's what they want. They want to charge us for everything. Look at how everything is a rental service now. They want to charge us for using everything in the world, pay no taxes, eat no costs themselves, and just live off the labor of other people. And again, when we talk about this being a thing in other countries, we talk about how embarrassing it is. But this is what the U.S. is now. And there is close to zero acknowledgement of how fundamental it is to the whole experience of the United States. Washington Post article continues uh, by helpfully quoting one of these business owners, you know, just for our uh, benefit here. For Michael Wheelock, president of Grayback Forestry, a contract wildfire fighting company headquartered in Southern Oregon, complying with the new heat rule has been, quote, cumbersome. Wheelock said he has had to buy an ice machine and insulated coolers to keep drinking water cold enough. He also has to monitor the heat index and call the required number of rest breaks, which just so burdensome, you know, it's simply oppressive. 
This is exactly what I'm talking about, though, because, like, by any accounts, that's the bare minimum of what he should be doing. And yet this is a source of complaint that this is, you know, oh, it's too much to actually have to care about the people who are making me money. Like, that's too much. And the government shouldn't have to make me see these people as human beings, because more than anything else, exactly or to take off from what Noah was saying about this is neo-feudalism, like, there is a class of people who are allowed to have rights and they have all of the rights. And the rest of us, uh, we just need to also become part of that class. So we all need to become business owners because that's the ultimate thing you can be. More than being a parent, more than being a citizen, more than being a taxpayer. If you are a business person, if you own a business, you have more rights and you have more of a say than anyone else in the world at this point, at least in this country. And sure, there are high barriers to uh, owning a business. And sure, if everyone owned a business, then nobody would be around to make money for those businesses. And sure, these are all things, but that's the only way that we can really rise up is to ascend to the class of business owners. And then maybe then we would be able to protect ourselves from climate change and we would be able to protect ourselves from uh, or, or enact changes that would protect ourselves from this and it, it's absolutely ridiculous and all they keep doing is a delay tactic to keep all of us squabbling and fighting about uh, water breaks while they build themselves bunkers to survive the next wildfire and to uh, survive the next like 120 degree heat wave that kills everybody they're hoarding food they're hoarding space they're hoarding water and they're all doing this while we have to just struggle to survive right now but have you considered that quote employees in virginia are acclimated to their environment and are less impacted by higher temperatures which is the argument being made by connor miller of the virginia forest products association I'll show you a forest product. <laughs> yeah, so if they're so acclimated, why are they dying? Yeah, it's obviously made up. It's obviously not true. It doesn't matter how acclimated and adapted you are to a climate that continuously rises. Like, nobody is adapted to this climate. Nobody is. We are all dying. Yeah, but see, the moment that you acknowledge that that's the case, that that is actually happening, that that is a problem... Then you have to admit that – see, this is this is a difficult part because I do not want to get into, like, the moral Olympics about this. Nobody on this call is – is, is obviously personally but ultimately responsible for these heat deaths happening. The people that are have thousands of – useless lawyers and accountants and political science and communications majors who are earning their keep convincing other people and and at this point kind of playing like what's the stupidest thing i can say and get away with that you know nobody will make fun of me congratulations there's no low bar there it, it's just you you can't win that game it, it's over you are playing on nothing on zero difficulty at this point this is a country that believes anything. I mean, look at how, look at the reaction to the wildfires in Lahaina, in Hawaii right now. Look at how many the 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 videos that are getting play aren't from native Hawaiians who are explaining like here's the situation here, or please don't come to my island that's on fire, 
or maybe donate money instead of spending your vacation enriching a hotel group. No, it's from conspiracy theorists who are insisting that the fact that some trees have bark and are therefore thermally insulated is evidence that this was a government experiment. I don't think human beings are like any less smart than they've ever been, but I am increasingly having a very low opinion of how smart they ever have managed to be. Here I might point out, I came across a statistic at some point years ago, which is not a good way to start anything authoritative, that like increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is bad for cognitive development, which would explain a lot. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah, people are... They, they're they're incurious at the same time that they're convinced of their own superior th- skills and thinking that this is not the place to get into that. But, no. but it, yeah. I, I will say that in this case in climate change, in, in the case of climate change, this is something that they that those companies that are behind this fossil fuel companies, energy companies, all of that explicitly pushed. Let's remember that once upon a time, it was a common thing to say global warming isn't happening because it snowed in New Jersey. Like, this has never been an intelligent debate. Oh, oh, here we go. I'm getting the... And here, I'll just point out, like, it did not snow in New York City last winter. We got, you know, maybe one day where snow stuck to the ground for a few hours, but otherwise it was a snowless winter, which... As somebody from Rochester felt very foreign and weird to me. Well, even in Rochester, we got maybe of like maybe three feet over the course of the, the season, which for Rochester, one of the snowiest metropolitan areas in the lower 48, is insane. We average like 80 inches of snow a year, not 40. Like that was bananas. And everybody, but like the worst part is everybody who would tell me, oh, isn't it wonderful how nice it is right now? And all the same people I know are like, yeah, sure, it's end times, but yeah, I'm glad you can uh, feel comfortable enough to go outside in shorts right now in February. Yeah. I think we'll call this segment there, and when we come back, we'll try to find a positive angle to the end of the world. We'll see what we can do. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. I really thought you were going to go with heat. For yeah. This. yeah, I thought about it, but this is, this is bleak. We've been talking about climate change and A, the impact it's having on workers here in the present day, and B, the business lobbyists who are working hard to ensure that it continues having that impact on workers in the future by, you know, preventing states from instituting, you know, water break laws and things that might mitigate 
the conditions workers have to deal with. Now we're in the third segment. We're going to try and find some sort of hope here, some sort of idea for a future that sucks slightly less. And one idea, which isn't the worst idea, but I do think misses the mark, comes to us from an Oxford study, which argues that the nine to five workday, which has become the standard for probably the last hundred years or so, roughly, should in fact become the six to two workday, 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., so that workers are out of the workplaces before you know the hot hours of the late afternoon, and we can at least reduce some of the impact in this way. How do we feel about this? No, I don't like it. I no. I only wake up for work by six under extreme duress, uh, personally. So no. Um, second, I like the implication that workers going into work between six and two, six a.m. and two p.m. Um, just cease to exist after that point and don't have to go anywhere else during the hard- hottest part of the day. Uh, so, like, that's it. This is really just a, a like mitigate the cost to business owners for yep. like cooling their buildings and anything. It doesn't solve anything. It doesn't do anything. People still have to exist in the hottest part of the day. They're just not existing at work where they're not productive because they're so hot. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because this is an article that ends by mentioning what the Japanese government did uh, some decades ago, ultimately to do exactly that, to mitigate costs for businesses. So it was uh, you know, put on a short sleeve shirt instead of a suit during the summer. Keep the office thermostat at 28 Celsius. Come into work earlier instead of later. Take longer holidays in the summer. And then banning overtime. All of which end up being ways for businesses, pardon me, to save money. But which are exactly the kind of things you expect Fortune Magazine. Which, by the way, I did not realize was a Yahoo imprint now. I don't know if it's a Yahoo imprint or if Yahoo's just republishing the article with permission. Fair enough. But again, it's the same thing, not not to, you know, keep mentioning the pandemic, but why are we having to go back to the office? It's not because that's better for workers. It's not because that's better for literally anybody except the people who own office buildings, who are mad that they are not able to recoup their investment because... As um, Lou was saying last segment, the thing about the class of business owners is that they are people who demand when their investments go wrong, when the risk that they supposedly that they that they took and which they want you to be very proud of them for taking doesn't pay off. They want to take it out of your hide. They want the rest of us to pay for their mistakes. And we have been doing that for all of human history. That is why we are where we are like. I know at this point it is a nearly universally acknowledged truth, unless you're a moron, but we know for a fact that Exxon and other oil companies knew this was all coming. They redesigned their infrastructure to take it to basically mitigate that ahead of time. We know that these companies were aware of the the fact that their activities were having and they stopped any political development towards mitigating any of it, thereby consigning millions of people who just happen to be born and live in the tropics to death. That is what they did. 
in a society, in a world that made sense, we would be having crimes against humanity trials for these people. They would be in the docket, and we would be and we would be hitting them with, I mean, untold counts of murder. But instead, we have what we have. So maybe it's better if we all, um, as a certain president said some years ago, maybe we look forward and try to find the solution instead of, you know, punishing the people responsible. I mean, we should do that, to be clear. But also, we should maybe fix some things. Yeah. I do want to get to an actual good idea before this segment ends, but I I think the thing that gets me about this uh, six to two workday idea is that for all of the talk of how, you know, using less fossil fuels would be inconvenient, it would affect X, Y, and Z, it would just be, you know, unpleasant. We couldn't possibly do that. This would be a massive change to how humans live their lives on just an incredible scale. If you think about it, it would mean hundreds of millions of people waking up before dawn every day, driving to work before dawn every day to get to work on time. It's more inconvenient than I can imagine just about anything being. And this is the solution being offered, right? It's not really about the convenience. Now, I did promise good ideas. And so here I'll point out that in the New York Times article, which we uh, referenced a lot in the first segment, it does take note of a couple positive developments, maybe we can say. Quote, in Southern California, a group of 84 striking Amazon delivery workers say that one of their top priorities is getting the company to make it safe to work in extreme heat. Last month, unionized UPS workers won a victory when the company agreed to install air conditioning in delivery trucks. Uh, The Teamsters went on to win a lot in the contract they earned through the threat of strike. Article continues. Staff at the Acropolis, the famed Greek tourist attraction, began a work stoppage today after being told to work in extreme heat. Gig workers are also pressuring the Indian government to build shelters with toilets, drinking water, and charging points to support them while they wait for customers under scorching heat, according to Shaikh Salaudin, a union leader in the state of Telangana. Collective action can help us to win things that are at least going to mitigate the problems that we face from a warmer world. But ultimately, the best solution here is to avoid the warmer world as much as we can. It's to reduce our use of fossil fuels so that this doesn't become a question of three degrees versus four degrees, but instead like maintains a world in which the Maldives exist, in which Texas is habitable. I think that would be better than everybody going to work at 6 a.m. personally. Yeah, because, you know, we still got to eat. We're still going to have to drink water. We're still going to have to sleep at night, which is really hard to do if it's 100 degrees outside. It doesn't matter how early you have to go to bed. If it's too hot to sleep, that's not going to do anything for you. And you're exactly right, Ryan, like that suggestion that we go to work at 6 a.m. is so much more disruptive than having trains that are better and more easy to access like come on guys but these things all affect people who 
will be and are affected by climate change. The people who can do this for us are not going to be affected by climate change to the same degree. In fact, they are the ones responsible for climate change in a large part, and they're not going to be affected by it. And honestly, until we create a situation in which the people who are causing this are also affected by this and affected just as badly as us, if not worse, then we're not going to get a whole lot to be a little radical. And that's and that's the real fear of it, that this isn't going, that nothing will be done until it is way too late because it has begun to affect the people who hold the reins. If there is one spur, one nasty, brutish, mean, spite-based spur to collective action, it is the fact that, as Lou said, these people are going to build bunkers and they're going to hire Pinkertons and they're going to do everything possible to ride out climate change in their fortresses. The only way we stop them from doing that is to band together, demand better from them, and demand and, and force them into doing something about this climate change business. They're never going to do it on their own. They think of you as slaves. They always have. That has never changed. I don't care how close to the exalted you are. They would, frankly, they would run over their own parents to make a little extra money or to have a little extra power to buy another politician. They don't care. We have only ever had each other. We will only always ever have each other. And if we don't start having each other's backs, if we don't start seeing that everyone from, you know, every everyone from farm workers in, you know, not even that far away. We've been talking Florida and Texas, but like Batavia is halfway between where I live in Buffalo. And that is, you know, we've got ICE handing out migrant labor to quote unquote farmers there. Until we realize that all of us deserve a better life and band together to demand that, these people are going to keep picking us off one by one. For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. Every week we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work. Whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>